I want to say it was like 10 years ago. I was working on a shoot for a commercial for a uh, local Sheraton hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts. And an outsider who was hired with like the main core group of uh, people who produce the commercials uh, within this company. I won't say what company it is. I don't even know if they're still in business now. And I was having lunch with the guys during our lunch break. And one of the core group members was leaving. He got a new job elsewhere. I think he became like a professor or something at a local college. And someone else at the table said a quote that, I don't know, just kind of stuck with me. And it was a good metaphor that kind of ties into what I'm kind of talking about here today. He said, ah, our drummer's leaving. We're going to lose the rhythm now. Now look, I've never played in a band before, but a lot of people over time say when you're building a band, you start with recruiting the drummer. Because just like the poster on the movie we're talking about here today, Count Me In, the poster reads, you can have rhythm without music, you can't have music without rhythm. Count Me In is a documentary available right now on Netflix for you all to sit back and watch. It's about drummers. It's not about how one becomes a drummer or what a drummer does. That sounds like basic elementary stuff. It's about the art of drumming, getting inside the mind of a drummer, why a drummer decided to become a drummer. I just said that word drummer a lot. The film has interviews from Will Ferrell lookalike Chad Smith, the drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers, Stephen Perkins, Roger Meadows of Queen, and one of the last interviews of Taylor Hawkins, who passed away recently, drummer for the Foo Fighters, and many other more, including archival footage of Ringo Starr and the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Dire Straits, the Rolling Stones, and many others to name throughout this hour and 21-minute documentary. Today on the show, I got none other than Mark Lowe, the mastermind behind this project. So, welcome to the basement, everybody. Mark Lowe, welcome to Tyler Geis's basement. So happy to have you here today. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> nice, to be, nice to be here. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, look, the documentary is Count Me In. Uh, I caught it on Netflix uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. That's when I reached out to you. Um, there's a nice mention about it in Rolling Stone. Well, they were also talking about the Chili Peppers, uh, I think, I think it was about their 2022 tour that I missed when it came through where I'm at. <laughs> um, and when we were emailing back and forth, I just noticed this the other day when we were setting up a time. You have a quote from The Rock about your yeah, movie. Yeah, we do, which was quite, yeah, which we didn't know. I mean, I've, he's on Instagram, he's one of the people I follow. Um, so (laughs) because, you know, it's the rock, he's everywhere. I mean, he's got 70 million followers or something silly like that. And it was the film had come out on a Tuesday, I think. And anyone who follows the rock knows if they ever see a thing on his thread, it'll, he'll have cheat day when he does, it drinks his tequila, of course. And he has, you know, whatever he wants to eat. That's his cheat day. And this one cheat day, which must've been, I presume the Saturday or the Sunday, 
following morning on the Monday, I was just strolling through the uh, the feed and I saw what looked like the the hold screen, the title screen of our movie uh, on his page. And I thought, well, what? And then he's just doing his shout out going, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, love it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, what? A PR person went crazy when I rang her and said, is this of interest? Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, that was that was a great caller. I mean, that was that was just so silly. So of course now on anything we send out press wise, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's biggest movie, biggest movie star in the world liked our documentary. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's really something. I'm, I'm hoping one day I'll bump into him just so I can say thank you. Yeah. No, he he does that. I I, I follow him on Instagram too, like millions of other people do. And yeah, yeah his like Sunday night routine is. Like I, I don't hit the gym. I don't hit the gym anymore, really, like how I should. You know, I have a baby at home. And well, I mean, that's not the, my real excuse. I just haven't hit the gym in a few years. But like his yeah. meals. I can't believe we're talking about this uh, on yeah. the top of the show. I mean, it, yes. He had um, something the other day with tw- 12 eggs or something like that. And I'm yeah. going, she got <laughs> And he'll get like these brioche, like French toast um, bread. And oh my God, what he dumps it in is like, unreal and then yeah he he follows that with it's usually a documentary he's been doing it for a few years so now that's got to be real flattering um we'll talk about count me in in a, in a few but let's just like yeah. tease it off the top you know i mean what what's this uh what's this doc about for anybody who hasn't caught it on netflix yet well it's about drummers but it's not about drumming i suppose that's the difference when i was asked what i wanted to make i said i want to make a film about the joy of play the joy of being a drummer so it doesn't teach you anything about what it is to I mean a little bit because bless him um Taylor Hawkins tells a lovely story about how he started with his neighbor Ken Cleaser sitting him down and saying okay you do this you do this you do this and he said you're a drummer dude and it's just a lovely moment and he really captures captures that and so it's a film about being a drummer told by the drummers there's no narration by anyone else so we only use their voices yeah throughout the film so because it's important that that it's their story so we don't you know superimpose it with a with a third person like me babbling away (laughs) with horrible yeah no (laughs) it is intriguing i really love i'm not even i mean i'm just a music fan i'm not a musician by any stretch i think i tried it when i was i think i picked up a guitar when i was 16 and put it down when i was like 18 <laughs> just, i thought you were gonna say 16 and a half okay well you, you hung on for a couple of years i hung on for a couple of years i tried to like i thought for a while i was gonna like move to nashville or something and try to make it like not as like a belt big belt buckle cowboy hat country singer but like i don't know i thought i could be yeah. like a another johnny cash or something but um, uh, well before we get into that i um <clears throat> excuse me uh, you have been in the music industry for a while and you've been on the music side of filmmaking for a while. Uh, yeah. You've uh, talked to me about your days as being a music agent because I don't even know the first thing about I know, you know, film agents and people getting screenplays produced and whatnot. But yeah. when it comes to a music agent, how well, what's the logistics? I kept well, I had I came up from a weird circuitous background in the sense of I'd worked in the city of London, which is kind of in computer companies selling stuff. So basically putting teams of people together and, and doing that. So it was like, it was like recruitment, but for tech people. So, and I didn't love that job, funnily enough, but it was a job that made me money. Great. And then I kind of quit all that in the late eighties, early nineties. And I played music for a while, I played guitar, nothing famous or anything, but 
and I did what I loved, which was great. So I made lots of money. Well, not lots of money. I made enough money. And then I made no money for quite a few years uh, being a musician. And, it, well, you know, I just I couldn't make a living at it full time. So, but, you know, it was my passion. I thought, okay, went on holiday, came back from Mexico after three months and went, okay, what am I going to do? And this job came up saying, do you love film? Do you love music? And it was in a the Guardian newspaper here. My girlfriend said, you love both of these things. So I think you should. So I went along. It was a company called Air Adele, which is part of the Air Group, like Air Lindhurst. It was George Martin's company, the Beatles. Yeah. And I did an interview, which I, was, I wasn't even sure I really wanted this job, but it was a, an agent or a junior agent or whatever. And then I went back and I really, really wanted it. And I, I managed to get it. I, I was the, the guy, so it was good. And then I started. And so it used the combinations of loving music um, being passionate about it. I had to learn a lot about film music, which I didn't know that, mu that much when I started. I was, you know, into bands. So my first ever, I think within a week, I was at Air Lindhurst with a 90-piece orchestra sitting there with my jaw on the floor doing Muppets from Space. And it was hysterical. I just thought, well, this is, this is another world. And, it's, and so it was brilliant. And so my job as an agent was, well, I had to learn how to look after and represent composers. So I had to find the films that were looking for people or persuade them that you know they wanted to see our composers um get them on there negotiate the deals you know you don't start by doing that obviously you're you're shadowing your boss or one of your bosses who does that and you learn you know and then one day you get a you manage to pull your own gig for a composer and it goes from there and so yeah so that was pretty much it and i just learned on the job interesting uh, being a music supervisor, that, that, that sounds like what was the solid or did that, what came first agent or being a music? So that, oh, that's my own agent. question, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, agent came, first, agent came first. And then I think we had, uh, one of the music supervisors at Aerodel was on holiday and I did a little, I stepped, they asked me to step in and I found a, a track for, uh, a, a particular film. And I went, oh, okay, so Mark's able to do that. That's worth knowing. And then I think my first proper supervision gig was probably on The Devil's Double, um, which is the Lita Mahori film. And I was repping the composer, which was Christian Henson got the gig. Um, but in doing it, I had to go to Antwerp, to Belgium, to meet Lee. Um, and we met and we talked about composers. And eventually he said, I want this Christian guy. Can we bring him over? And then he said, well, if I'm having Christian, I want you to be the music supervisor. So it was the kind of fade to complete because I could go back to my boss and go, we got the gig, but I have to be the music supervisor. <laughs> so she went, oh, all right, well, we'll do that then. And it moved on from there, you know, and I gradually and then we, I, our parent company took me on full time as, a, as an executive producer, music producer for film music. So, yeah. So, and it, yeah, went from there. So you then have to make decisions with your director about, you know, the impossible tracks that they always want to clear and come <laughs> for. You, uh, you, I'm just going off your IMDb again, but you worked on, uh, I think it was an Oscar winner, uh, Carol with Kate Blanchett, right? Yes. That was one of the last things I did with Aerodel. Yeah. In fact, I think it was the last thing I did with them. Yeah. That's a good, that was a good flick. I, I, I dug it. I dug it. Um, uh, so yeah. I was telling you before we hit record, uh, I, I made like a little low budget. I don't even, I shouldn't even say low budget. I should say like no budget film <laughs> back like 10 years ago. A lot of, the, a lot of that going around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, like if I did it now, it would probably pop up on like one of those streaming services, like Tubi or something that just like acquires everything and anything. Yeah. Um, 
But the reason where I'm getting at here is I had a friend come by and just like have like a little two lines in, in, the, in a scene and he wouldn't leave the set. He knows who he is. He's listening right now. Uh, not right now, but when this airs, but, uh, he just, not that he like wouldn't leave, but he would just come by and just hang out if I needed any help, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, well, I gotta have you do something. And and he's has a lot of skills. He's a singer and whatnot. And his dad, um, is a musician and everything. And I liked some of the, um, you know, I heard his dad playing music one night just like alone on his acoustic guitar. And I was just like, why don't we have your dad score the movie? Cause I know like, you know, he, he can't play an instrument, uh, my friend. And I was just like, well, can you be like a middleman? And he's like, sure. What title should that be? And I was like, I don't know, music supervisor. I saw that in a credit somewhere. And now he, he got credited in the film as a music supervisor. Excellent. <laughs> I think it's on his resume still, but um, yeah. So I guess there's some sort of a, uh, comparison between what you do and maybe what he did probably on a grander scale i don't know yeah but um well you've been obviously to work on that side of things for a while you have to be a music fan and i just kind of want to you know there's always a little bit of fandom side to what you what my guests have been into growing up and coming up through yeah. the ranks um you know you're originally from where where what town are you originally from over there well, I'm pretty much from London. I mean, I'm from, I, I grew up in sort of Surrey, which is kind of like outside of London, and then spent a while in near Brighton um, on the south coast of England for a few years until I was 16, then moved back to London when I was 16. So I've been, you know, I was in, on the south coast between the ages of 10 till 16. So when I came back to London full time, it was like, wow, London, you know, and I just missed punk because I'm of that vintage. Yeah. where I would have been 16 in 79. So I just kind of missed punk. But I did come to London, and one of the first bands I saw was Blondie at Hammersmith Odeon, and on the E to the B tour, and I was like, okay, I'm I'm so in the right city. <laughs> I'm so in the right place for this. Um, and getting to see the bands that I'd loved as I was growing up, like Queen and what have you, who I couldn't, I was too young to, to travel to go and see them and what have you. So um yeah so i mean london for a 16 year old is just in the late 70s was just a heaven i can imagine yeah. yeah like what uh i'm sure you were a frequent at uh record stores and whatnot oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i mean i've had a ridiculous record collection um back in the day of course most of the finals well actually most of the finals are arriving back here now so at some point or other, I sold all my vinyl, most of it, except the collector's ones. And now I'm buying it all back again because nothing sounds as good as vinyl. But I got uh, obsessed with CDs. Um, but yeah, no, it was, again, because you're in London, I have a dear friend of mine, Ian, who I've known for 40 odd years. And he could never understand my fascination with just going through in that very much uh, what's high fidelity, you know, the, like the book yes, and like the movie. Yes. That thing about going through racks of records, you know, why? So why are you doing that? I, said, I just want to see what there is. You know, who's doing what? Who, you know, who made what record? It's just, uh, it, it's. I don't know where that obsession comes from, but there's a lot of us around. You know. Yeah, physical media heads. Yeah, yeah. No, as you can yeah. see behind me, I, that's part of my yeah. uh, Blu-ray. I was very impressed. Collection. <laughs> Some of that's my books, and I, I, so like. To, to kind of you know meet you halfway on things i mean like i i obviously love music you're probably a way more you know in depth than i am with record collections one even though i got a little one over there in the corner you can't see but it is kind of that feeling of holding it like having and sometimes you don't even want to you could spend hours in a, a record store or a video store even though we don't have probably more record stores and video stores these days but 
it's that feeling of, you know, looking at the cover art and whatnot. And yeah. even if it's something you've never heard of or seen, you, I don't know, even you just still might want to give it a try. Like, I, I, I don't know what your experience. Yeah. We did, um, we did, in fact, with Chad's in, in Count Me In, covered up perfectly, especially when, because we got all this media now, but there was a time when it came out when, they weren't generally, artists weren't on the radio all the time. They weren't on TV all the time. And quite often that record cover, it was your only way in. You know, that was, yeah. that told you all the liner notes. I mean, I Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous, one of my favourite albums of all time. I knew the liner notes off by heart and the engineer on that ended up coming to Aerodell and doing a session. And I was introduced to him and I went, you did Live and Dangerous. And he went, I did. Now, I would never have known that in this modern age, but because I'd sat and listened to that album countless times and read every single line of notes, um, and he became a mate. It was great. And he was, I was just so, I had so many questions. Poor man. I mean, I, I must have yeah. So what was it like? When, when did you, how, what was that? I know, so God. Um, but he was very, very understanding. Bless him. Oh, uh, that that's the thing about that physical medium is you can actually, there is, you know, you can read lyrics. I mean, you can do, you can read lyrics off iTunes as well as, as the songs playing, but it's, it's not the same. No, it's, it's not. I mean, look, I have a Kindle now and I, I but I also have a stack of books here. I still have to get through. Um, and I actually, yeah. honestly, I'll make a defense for Kindle. Like I actually, a Kindle, like for reading, I actually <laughs> thoroughly enjoy knowing how much like paid percentage of the book I have left while I'm reading yeah. it. I don't know. It's just, no, no, I have um, I have a slight sickness, which is I love hardback books, but I think Kindle is brilliant. So I buy the hardback book and I buy the Kindle. So I effectively buy the book twice. Sometimes I will read, but I, I will read. But I like the physicality of having it, but I hardly ever. I just read Alan Rickman's diaries on okay. the Kindle. Um, and it's brilliant. And it's very, you know, it's it obviously, you know, the ending It's tragic, but um but he's brilliant and incredibly funny and acerbic but i've got the hardback book there and it's a sickness i think i could just get the kindle but you know that's if but you know there are worse addictions to have oh, yeah definitely um yeah i i feel like uh with kindle i'll uh i'd rather get the like a new release and maybe with physical books and whatnot i'll double back and get something i missed like five years ago or something i don't know or sort of like a classic just to have it just so it's not digital uh it, it's real funny how you made that connection with someone through through uh you just mentioned through um records and whatnot because me with buying blu-rays and dvds still yeah. i i like to and there's all these boutique labels all over the world now um i think over your way there's kino kino lorber lorber i can't talk today which mm. is a big blu-ray uk blu-ray label and they have like a little streaming service where they just show like old 70s B-level movies and whatnot. It's actually kind of cool. Uh, but you can, there's so many movies I bought that I don't even truly like. Like I didn't even, I just like, there was something about the cover art and mm. that's, you know, you know, four, 30, 40 years ago, like, you know, that's how they're going to try and sell a movie. They're going to try and sell you on some risque tongue in cheek cover art, even if the movie doesn't really hit. And I yeah. was just listening to a podcast recently. It's a pure cinema podcast. Um, Edgar Wright, the director, was on that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he was talking about, um, he, because they're talking about like underground, you know, underrated, underground, underheard of uh, British horror films. 
and he was working on a shoot or something and he had somebody brought someone else on in their department and it was a director of a I don't know what they call it over your way, but here in the States, it's, it's just like kind of like public service, little short films that they show to kids in schools. And yeah. it was, there was one that it, I'm paraphrasing, but there was one, um, it was actually like a really scary public service, little short film. And Edgar Wright fell in love with it. He thought it was just such a well-crafted movie. And all of a sudden the guy who directed that movie that just like disappeared into obscurity is working on last night in Soho his last movie yes. and he's just like oh you i know you <laughs> i love that movie that i can't remember fantastic that oh that's lovely but he is i mean he's we have a phrase here i don't know if i think it translates in america but we, we call someone who's um obsessive like uh like edgar Wright is uh, an anorak which means that they, they, they kind of stand out in all weathers and like you know i think maybe it's from the people who go train spotting where they actually stand and they take train numbers down yeah, you know, it, that, that's maybe where it comes from. But I'd, I'd, I'd love to know. Maybe someone can tell. I'm going to look it up afterwards. But um, it is. He's an anorak. He's an obsessive like Tarantino is as well. He's an obsessive. Yeah. You know, I mean, that that thing of having watched every con every conceivable bit of celluloid that's ever been made, it seems, you know, he seems to know. And I think um, I mean, I'm, it's not me. I mean, I've, I've, I've not, I've, I'm kind of. I'm, I think I'm a bit ADHD. I like I love film. I love music. I love this and that, you know. So I will, you know. But I think that there is that laser-like um, obsession that I think is brilliant. You know. Yeah, Scorsese too. So like I always fun, yeah. pay attention when an article comes out, some major publication. Here's yeah. 50 foreign films you should watch before you die by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> well, yeah, Every film that, snob's gonna read that. Like, yeah. Well, Guillermo del Toro is like that as well. He's encyclopedic. And he's fantastic. I, I can listen to him talk about film. Any great director, to be honest, I think that they're all, you know, yeah, fascinating and scary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's get into what you directed. Count me in. Oh, that, um, yes. My big question off the top: uh, Why drummers? Why drummers? Um, it was partly because I was I couldn't drum when I was a kid. I, I loved the idea of being a drummer. But let's face it, you've not just got to have understanding parents, you've got to have an understanding neighbourhood. And I just didn't grow up somewhere where I could have a drum. Bizarrely, the drummer from Royal Blood in the film um, is lived in Rustington, which is a little village I lived in when I was a kid. And he drummed. In, I said, I, I lived in Rustington. He said, you did? I said, you've got a drum kit in Rustington? He said, yes, my neighbours... We're very understanding. But I, so I didn't have a chance to drum, but I found guitars and I found keyboards, um, but mainly guitar. And I lasted more than two years. So I carried on. I still have a bunch over here. And I love, I love playing. But I was always, I've always been jealous of drummers. So a few years ago, I was, when I was still doing the film agent thing and the, and the music supervision thing, a friend of mine who's a film financier, an executive producer, and I had dinner. And he said, by the way, um, he was telling me about his, his in-law's house. It turns out his in-law's house was a place called Headley Grange. Headley Grange is where Zeppelin went to record, um, well, I mean, quite a few albums, in fact. Um, so it was their, their remote place in the country they went to. So I had an idea, which was, why don't we take a couple of drummers down there and make a drum library, you know, like a sample library, so people can play those drums 
in their studios, you know, on a keyboard, but but really beautifully sampled. And while we're at it, why don't we get some really great famous drummers to do it? So I suggested this to, to Spitfire Audio, Christian Henson and his lot. And they said, if you can get the drummers, we'll do it if the people agree. Anyway, nine months later, we pull up to the house with Chad Smith. That's how I got to know Chad. He walks in. The first thing he does, apart from kiss the ground, and it's just brilliant. You can find it online. I think there was a making of called the Great. It's called the Grange, making of the Grange. And of course, if you want to reignite someone's love of drumming, or you know, which they've tried to suppress because of jealousy and the fact that they feel hard done by because they never had a drum kit, it would be that. Because we went in. He started playing when the levee breaks, just for the sheer hell of it. You know that blah blah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. You just, um, I just, and he, God, he's loud, man. He's so loud. So, long and short of it was that Roger Taylor from Queen did the following day, which was incredible. So, we had two two days with those guys. And then Andy Gangadine from Massive Attack and what have you came down to do some funky stuff for us. And that was it. And it was the fire was lit. And that was, I was like, right, drummers, I, they're, they're the glue that holds everything together. And yet, for some reason, it's always the lead singer or the guitarist that gets yeah. the accolades. And these are the people, they're the, the heartbeat of everything. So I had the idea. Chad said, well, if you make it, I'll be in it. And I said, well, thank you, mate. And so and he proved he, he was a big part of it. He did the first interview, did an interview backstage before the Chili Peppers went on. And that's in. Yeah. And we made a promo and we got the finance and we managed to get out and do it. You know, it took us a while. I had to learn on the job. I'd never made a film before. So best way to do something is just jump. Yeah. <laughs> so so we did. And um, everyone in it was fantastic. And the great thing is also because we weren't making a drummer drummers film, we were making a, a film about loving something and playing music you know we were able to find a lot of women who drum as well you know the important thing was not just to be with the best will in the world old men stroking their chins going oh yes i remember which was you know but that, i mean they've got it's important to have those stories too because yeah. those are the history of of modern rock and roll and we were very much a rock and roll thing i mean we could have done jazz we could have gone all sorts of places but then you end up spreading yourself really thin but it was brilliant it was um honestly and i still i've got a brilliant snare here that i got from dw when i finished the film but i still don't have a drum kit and i don't have anywhere to put one <laughs> so but i know i don't want an electric one because when you work with nothing but real drum kits for two years yeah an electric kit just doesn't do it you've just got to move air that's that's the, the joy of it it's that sheer physicality it's brilliant i love i just love drums yeah, no, I was um the another doc from I'm sure you know it uh 10 15 years ago. It might get loud in here uh, with um yeah, Jack yeah, yeah. White and uh, the Edge and Jimmy Page and <laughs> forget who else. With that amazing moment when he plays whole lot of love and the two of them look like they're 12 years old again. Yeah. They're just watching it and I just it's my one of my favorite film moments ever. Well, you mentioned uh going there and playing drums at the bottom of the steps and uh I remember, I think I had a, I took a two audio classes in um, college. I was, I was going to film school, but they had, there was like a recording studio in my department. So they made like sound design classes and I just took it out of general interest. I, you know, once upon a time, maybe I wanted to maybe work in music, but that didn't pan out at all. Uh, But the teacher um, was a a sound designer uh, and sound engineer too, I think. And uh, we watched that documentary. And um, that is where I fell in love with when the levee breaks, like just that, Ah. those opening beats. 
um, and finding out that they played it at the bottom at the bottom of a stairwell, not mm-hmm. in some like enclosed thing. Like it, that's that's Headley Grange. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, I couldn't remember the name. So uh, no, no, no. But um, it is. It's um. It's all. The funny thing is, it's it's a tiled floor. Yeah, and then it's wood stairs that just go up. Oh yes, because of course in the film he goes back there, doesn't he? As well. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he does, and it's something about the the way the sound rises in yeah, that stairwell that gives it that extra oomph. Uh, yeah. No, it's just it's just a great moment. That's kind of when I fell in love with that song, and I kind of remember you. Yeah, you mentioned it in your film, and it took me back to that other one. And I don't know, just I think I put on when the levee breaks after uh, <laughs> after I watched <laughs> your film again. Yeah, you, you kind of can't not. Um... Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a special drum track anyway, because the, the the story is that the rest of the band set up in the main front room there. Yeah, and there was no room for the kit, so they set up his kit in the hallway because that was the only place they could put it. And then, of course, they just dropped a couple of mics down because in those days they didn't multi mic kit, and they just put a couple of mics down. Had the mobile studio outside on the driveway. Yeah, yeah, and then, um, I think he put a he put a slight uh, a delay on it. Jimmy Page, a, a, an effect, a, a delay, and they said, "John, mate, Bonzo, you better come and have a listen to this." <laughs> and they said, "It's like thunder." Oh yeah. my god! And it is, it's a strange place. I mean, Roger Taylor, when he did it, he said he thought it would be boomier, but it was a, quite a hard sound in there. But it's it's um. It's there's only only one place, and it's it's someone's private house. You know, it's it's someone's hallway, and it just happens to be one of the best drum areas in the world. You know, yeah. No, that, we were very lucky that they let us come and do that. That was yeah, that was fun. It's an incredible track. I mean, that, that's one. That's just a, that's one of those rock songs that stops me in my tracks, and I have to let mm. it play through. And when I hear it in like a movie trailer or something, I'm like, yeah. yes. Well, I think it's also one of the most sampled drum tracks. You know, on, on loads of different sort of styles of music and hip-hop yeah it's been used loads it's it's just it's just hits you like a brick it's just so powerful yeah i think beastie boys had sampled a lot of led zeppelin mm. at one point throughout their career let me jump into another drummer that i think you did a lot and i forgive me i didn't get a chance to re-watch it before i got you on to interview here but <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that oh my god but no, no, no. Um, yeah, you got you really made a justice for I feel Ringo Starr in a segment of this. Oh movie. yeah, I mean, talk not, to me about Ringo. Not that you really have to. Well, I never really appreciate. Actually, you know, it took me. I didn't. I think when I was about ten or twelve, I kind of like you know, I had there was glam and heavy rock and what have you blowing up, and I got into all of that. So I, I kind of missed the Stones and the Beatles. I wasn't tuned into that. And I kind of I enjoyed the Beatles, but I never really went down that path until years later when I kind of discovered like Rubber Soul and White Album, what have you. Just went, oh crumbs, this is something else. Try not to swear on your show. Um, okay. No, 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 in that case, uh, I thought, fucking hell, these band is brilliant, and I started going into it. And but the other thing is when you talk to other drummers, and they and they and you find out about how how he plays. I mean, I had a long conversation with the great Jim Keltner while we were making Count Me In, one of my all-time heroes. And um, it was amazing to have him in the film. But he said, you know, it's that thing of, he's a left-hand drummer playing a right-handed kit. And the way he 
so he kind of approaches the timing is his ti his timing but everything he plays everything he plays fits the song it's not flash but it's always inventive if you hear that and you're going where and the hi-hats just in the middle of that all and it's no one else is going to come up with that piece no one's going to come up with that arrangement the way even his just his straight grooves and you I heard some drummers talking about it a while ago saying, okay, you take the straight rock and roll song they do and they do it at this tempo and they do it for three minutes and a bit. You play that song and listen to him play it live and he plays it live and he's on it the whole time. He's, and every other drummer sways, slows down because it's a lot of effort. And he is just, so he's got the physical playing chops. He's got the skill, but of course he never, he wasn't one of those flash technical drummers. He was just a brilliant song drummer. And you know, I think that's, for my money, the best kind of drummer. You, you know, all you, if you can make people move and groove, yeah. you're a you're a great drummer. And he, and he, the other thing, of course, was he was the blueprint for a load of other drummers. You know, he started that thing. He turned up. Yes, of course, it was Charlie Watts, but Charlie came from the the jazz side of things and ended up joining an R and B band, which was the Stones. But he just came out of that whole Hamburg thing and obviously the Cavern Club in Liverpool. And he would have played like four or five gigs a night for a week, mm -hmm. every week, 52 weeks a year. And he just, you know, he was phenomenal and is phenomenal. Bless him. Um, yeah. Just so, yes, we had, you know, and he, and because, because there's a quote um, which is uh, um, attributed to Lennon who never said it, by the way, which is when asked um, about Ringo Starr, is, is he the best drummer? Um, he replied, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Um, <laughs> because Paul McCartney is a very, very good drummer. Um, but he never said it. It was turns out it was an English comedian called Jasper Carrot. And obviously it was a joke. He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Um, but um, no, it's not true. He's a brilliant drummer. But of course, that's, you know, travelled round with him because people... You know, it's easy to knock someone, but you know, I've got any drummer you ask has so much respect for him. Yeah, like there was always this. I don't know. There was always this joke of everybody knocked on Ringo. And I thought you really yeah. did him justice in this film. Like, I, I don't know from what concert, but it's archival footage I've seen plenty of times mm. where he's just. I think you I think he's like kind of standing up a little bit playing mm. and just going absolutely ape shit. And I remember going like, yeah, Ringo can freaking uh but his stool he had his stool really high, so he's yeah, kind of yeah. like almost falling onto the drums. I couldn't understand how he plays like that or played like that. But yeah, and also I think Abe Laboreal says, you know, Abe says, you know, he had a punk energy and he does. You yeah, listen yeah. to that, especially that live stuff. And it's yeah, yeah, he gave Dave Grohl a run for his money. Yeah. <laughs> um, his right foot isn't quite as heavy as Dave's. Dave's a loud player. But, um, yeah, he's, yeah. And it's great, but it's also good because talking to other drummers, as you were talking about who we would have in the film, gave me a bigger appreciation of Ringo. And that's when I really looked into it and I went, okay, we've really got to, to you know, just put the record straight here. Yeah, no, no, no. That was, that was a really cool part. I mean, if I go back and I listen to, I mean, like my, my parents, kids during Beatlemania over here, uh, you know, they, I was very aware of the Beatles when I was a kid and they made me very aware of them and the stones too. those, the, the, the those two back and forth. Uh, 
but um those early beatles tracks very much had incredible rhythm coming from the yeah. drummer if i re- like if i really think back and look at a lot of the, that those first few albums when they came to america I'm kind of paraphrasing i don't know actual historical things here yeah. but i just remember there was a very thick drum to it and i don't know i just don't know i mean personally george was my favorite if i just must say and everybody's got their favorite but i never understood yeah. the knocking of ringo star uh <laughs> so no no I, just, I don't know yeah i mean because because he probably because he was kind of the clown of the group wasn't he really yeah. i mean he, you know in the films as well when they made the, all those films he was yeah. always the comedic turn and i suppose some people don't take him seriously and you've got lennon and mccartney let's face it two of the greatest songwriters of all time yeah and i suppose then you've got the thoughtful quiet one which would be george yeah and so what are you left with? Oh, we know we've got the, the comedian. And so you're not going to get taken seriously. Sure. But, you know, but I mean, did you see, did you see the um, Get Back, the series? Uh, I never, I think I, I think there's what, three? three they're three and they're four hours long each. I think, yeah, I don't think I got to the third one, but I did watch the first two. <laughs> it's absolutely, but I mean, Peter Jackson's done an incredible yeah. job of pulling that story out and getting it, those three acts together. But again, you watch that and you kind of go, oh, wow. You know, if you, if you didn't ever appreciate them before, mm-hmm. then, yeah. I, I, from what I did watch of it, I just remember, I think it's the first one. You really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I just feel like mm-hmm. you really kind of feel they just have no creative energy anymore. Mm-hmm. And it like... For any diehard Beatles fans, like it's it's kind of crazy to actually have footage of seeing them kind of start to come apart. Um, and yeah, no, that that really was I think a in, good in one. many ways they'd come apart by that point, and, and they yeah, were, they, were, they were trying to force themselves back together, and it wasn't. And of course, they were in that aircraft hangar of a of a, <laughs> a live soundstage at Twickenham, which is ridiculous, and the atmosphere was awful. Of course, George actually ultimately quits the band yeah. in that first episode, you know, because he it's just not working and what's great about the next two episodes is how it comes together and then it really comes together yeah. Yeah. when you and when you find when you hear them those songs you know doing coming in and going i've got this thing and starts playing get back and you're going oh for god's sake you know? yeah it's like he's just kind of i've got this <laughs> like on the long and winding road you know you're just like yeah going, well how about this and he starts playing the piano and you just go Right. Okay. <laughs> this is a throwaway. If this is a band falling apart, crumbs. Um, yeah. I just. Well, uh, yeah. One of the last things I'll say about the Ringo Star yeah. poking fun at, and then I'll move on here, is there's a. I don't know if you ever seen this, but there's a old, probably from maybe the late seventies, early eight. Nah, it must have been late seventies because it was you know before John Lennon was killed. Yeah. Um. Uh, Lauren Michaels, the uh, executive producer, producer of SNL, is trying. He comes on like their weekend update show or something, and he's trying to get the Beatles back together to come on as like a music performance act or something. And I think he's just like, I have a check for X amount of dollars. Split it amongst yourself. If you want to give Ringo less, you can give Ringo less. I just want oh, you guys no. on the show. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Anything- if anything's to persuade them not to do it, that comment would probably have done it. Actually, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it's it's funny though. But I mean, you know, again, um, to shift gears, obviously, <laughs> to shift gears. And I don't want to shift gears too drastically, but I should mention it. Um, 
Taylor Hawkins is in this who just recently passed. Uh, I know you yeah. mentioned him earlier, but uh, I just, you know, what was it like sitting down? And because I, I seen Foo Fighters play. They did a three hour set about 10 years ago in Boston. Yeah. Three hours plus an encore. One of the best shows I've ever been to. Um, yeah, they're one of my favorite bands. So. I've, I've seen them a few times. I was lucky enough once to see them at the Astoria, which is no longer in, no longer there now. It, it's a great little, it's a small venue in London. And they played this tiny little show. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't remember 2010, something like that. Uh, it was the same time that Queens of Stone Age came over and did two gigs on the trot. And so I had Queens of Stone Age for two nights and the Foo Fighters. And after that, I just went to bed for the weekend. And I just couldn't, you know, I was, I was rock and rolled out. And they were they were fantastic. As a drummer, I mean, he's amazing. As a human being, just one of the sweetest people. I mean, just, we interviewed him twice. And in, in the film, you can see the change of location. We yeah. once Once in London and then again in Los Angeles um and he's just very chilled he's 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 a fan of music i mean a proper fan you know he's and he's not ashamed he's not he wasn't cool in the sense of like he was trying he he was just too cool he was he was but that made him very very cool because he was just enthusiastic about what he loved and he would you know and it turns out he and i both massive queen fans so we really got into it and the solo projects and all of that stuff you know we were so we were sitting there not with the cameras were on, we were just, he just, but the great thing, like we went to the pub afterwards. There's a pub called The Ship in Soho. Um, it's proper rock and roll pub. It's just around the corner from the studio we interviewed him in, which is no longer there. That was Trident, where Queen and Mark Bolan and Bowie used to record. And so we've got to go to The Ship because that's where they used to go drinking. And it was summer, I think, or spring. Anyway, people were outside. And of course, Taylor Hawkins rocks up to the rock and roll pub in the West End, and we put all the camera equipment in boxes so we had a standing table outside and he took photos with anyone who would come up to him and chatted with everyone um just just a genuine sweet human being and you know um heartbreaking what happened um yeah and and kind of unbelievable as well you know you've, you've been sitting talking with someone and then again in Los Angeles at his home, his lovely family and everything. And you just uh, and you just can't fathom it. You know, he was so full of life, just an, mm. an abundance of energy. You know, it kind of put you to shame if you're in his in his presence. And Chad Smith's kind of the same as well. A great big ball of energy that comes at you and encompasses you and makes you feel great. And you just go out into your day going, I just spent time with Taylor Hawkins. Right, what are we going to do now? <laughs> no, you do. You feel like Tigger. Um, and to think that that energy, I mean, obviously, you know, It'll come. I mean, if you saw his son play the um, the tribute concert, which was yeah. quite incredible. I mean, that what he he was Sean was brilliant, and you know, carrying that energy forward. So, brilliant family and the lovely people. But I just, you know, I just feel for them. Obviously, they haven't got their father anymore. You know, um, and I just, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. A lot of lot of um, bird tattoos were done in the last year, I'm sure. Um, and so it was very. So yeah, going back and seeing those, um, I think we put up a couple of clips online for people if they wanted to go and see them, you know, from the film. We didn't get told off <laughs> by Netflix. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we were one of the last people to do interviews with him. And um, yeah, very sad. Yeah, no, it was uh, impactful seeing him on screen after, yeah, yeah. after the past yeah. few months. I- yeah, I just I went back and watched it again. I watched his bits again. Uh, yeah, just just for that reason, just to kind of go, wow, you know. I mean, at some point, I might even dig out the whole interviews here and watch them. But I haven't yeah. been ma- that masochistic yet. I think it would be quite um, 
sad, you know, but um, but he was very, very funny. Well, no, you mentioned he seemed like such a fan and that was always the vibe I got from him too. It was, you know, mm-hmm. he just always probably, if you, even if you weren't making a documentary and you just knew him, he'd want to sit down and just talk about music for all damn day. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know him, but uh, those are like the kind of people I, I mean, just not making it about me, but those are like the kind of people I like kind of having on this show, like fans, like, yeah, you do this for, you do this for work. You do this. It's your passion. You pay the bills with it, but you can still be a fan about it. So like, ha- so like getting to interview someone like that has got to be one of the coolest things. So yeah, uh, with, without doubt, uh, without doubt. I mean, you know, we were very lucky. We had um, uh, Louise King, who's a very old dear friend of Taylor's as our main interviewer. So she and I would work out, she was used to be the editor of Rhythm Magazine. Um, so she knows all these dramas and we became friends because she got involved with the Headley Grange thing we did. So I then said, look, I want to make this film. Do you want to come with me and we'll work out what we want to ask them and we'll, I'll, I'll build a story and you can do the interviews with them because they like you and they know you. So they're going to be more relaxed with you. And she said, yeah, that's great. And she did. And she was brilliant and fantastic. And she, you know, did the interviews with those people. And of course, they're just going, oh, it's Louise. It's great. OK, let's do that then. You know, so you've immediately got a much better trust with the artist because they know the person who's sitting in front of them, that you're not a stranger. Yes, I could have asked the questions, but the great thing was I actually got to sit and listen, watch the interview, film it with the other, uh, with the main photographer, the DOP. And at the end of it, I can then sit there with a completely objective view and go, that's great. And Lou would always bless her turn to me and go, right, I think that's everything. Anything else? I went, yes, actually, because then I'd have lists because as they answer something, you go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder where that will go. And so you then get a natural kind of backwards and forwards. It was a great way of working. We, you know, we stumbled across it very early on and we just kept doing it that way, you know. Um, but yeah, having those, there were those of them. I mean, Cindy Blackman, Santana was just, in, she yeah. was incredible. We, we interviewed her. I could have actually, her interview was long. It was two hours. And I could have probably made an entire documentary series just with her voice about music uh, because she's just encyclopedic and brilliant and the best laugh. She has the best laugh. It just makes everyone around us. We're all smiling and it just it just lifts you, you know. Um, so, yeah, she was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I uh, just out of curiosity, this is, might just be a quick little question here, but how long did it take you to like make this like shooting wise? Because like, took- docs can take, you know, years. It, well, it, did, like- it, it did take years because I'd never made one before, so we didn't quite know what we we're getting into. Um, did you know that documentaries are meant to have a story? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Um, no, I mean, we know that had meant to have a story, but we had to, we started, we, we to make the film, we had to do a promo. So we comp- company said, we like the idea of this. This is interesting. We're going to give you a bit of money, make a promo. So we shot over to, we, we started interviewing people here and then we had enough left over to go and see a few people in the States, um, including, so the Stuart Copeland one was done very early. That was done at his place in America and a couple of others. So we had those, we made a promo uh, that we can never show anywhere because we've got tons of music in it. We could never license, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, got the, it got the job done. Uh, and then we just, so it, it took a couple of, it took three years, which is a long time to be making something. It can take you a long time to develop something, but it took us a bit. We also, we had the pandemic. So yeah. we got to the point where we finished the film, we cut it. Um, and then we were about to do the delivery of it and Twickenham Studios, where we did the post-production, had to close down. 
And so I'm sitting at home and my film is about nine miles in that direction, sitting on a shelf, well, or sitting on a hard drive doing nothing. Um, and we eventually got it out. And then, um, alas, the company we were making it with, um, we had to find a, a sales agent because they stopped being a sales agent because the pandemic, you know, affected people in different ways. So we eventually, Embankment saw it, loved it, said, we'll do it. And they did the Netflix deal, which was great. And so we finally came to life again. And in a big way, obviously, it went on Netflix, which was phenomenal. Yeah um and yeah and it's been but yeah so it took a long while and you know we had to learn how to do it none of us had made a documentary before even my co-producers had made dramas comedies but they'd never made a documentary so we were but we had great people we went and found great people Claire Ferguson edited loads of stuff including Beatles documentary so she came on helping building the story um uh, yeah and uh yeah kind of saved saved my life um and uh yeah and uh we went from there and andrew hume who spent five months holed up with me in a room in north london cutting it and um very very tolerant man i know i mean we got on brilliantly but you know you do think i don't spend that much time with anyone <laughs> yeah. to be stuck in this room with this guy and he's he but he's a musician as well so he cuts he's got a great sense of rhythm mm -hmm. so he understands about well, how about we cut on the offbeat on this and he just does he just knows you know he just mm -hmm feels it so you know it was kind of i never had to yeah you just brilliant yeah so anyway but yes so it was it was a long time i hope the next one's not going to take so long <laughs> well you met you mentioned cutting the film and just to kind of wrap things up here i want to talk about the the very ending that that jam session scene oh yeah very end with all these drummers starts off with chad smith i think and just pretty much strings through just about every drummer I think you talk to for the most part. I don't know. Uh, talk to me. Just talk to me about shooting that. It looked like so much fun and probably so much just fun. Them going around the room. Yeah. 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 So it starts, sorry to correct you. It starts with Cindy. Okay. Blackman. Yeah. Okay. You're right. So yeah. Cindy Blackman starts, she brings her jazz chops and her rock chops together and starts yeah. it. Um, well, we, so, so I had this idea that we would have four, maybe five drummers in a circle and they would do a relay. Mm -hmm. So they would hand over to each other. Um, so, and they all thought it was a great idea. The studios, we recorded it at Henson Studios, which is used to be the old A&M studios. It's okay. where they did everything from um, Joni Mitchell back in the day and Dylan to We Are The World was recorded there, you know, okay. with all the, the live aid thing. And Guns N' Roses, more importantly, did uh, Usual Illusion 1 and 2 in there. So you can imagine the mayhem that was in Studio <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were... We were in that studio, great big place, um, fantastic engineer who I'd worked with before. And um, so we said, let's do this. Um, and we set up, they brought all their individual drums and drum and drum techs down. And um, and we had an idea that we're going to hold, it was going to be three cameras, all handheld. Didn't matter that you'd see a cameraman every now and then running around, which you do in the film. I think there's a moment where we switched to Jess and a camera guy is belting along behind the drum kick trying to get to a position. I said, it doesn't matter. It's the energy that counts. And then we just, we had, we had, there's a track that plays right at the end when they're all, when we do the little summation at the end and it's just kind of, and that was um, Stephen Perkins. He did that with me uh, in the studio in LA. We just messed with all these drums and just messed around and recorded this track. Mm -hmm. And so we had that. And I said, I think we're going to finish the film on with this thing with a montage at the end about summation, about how these people feel. 
so it's 100 and whatever 17 beats a minute or something so we said let's do the session at that tempo if we can but obviously if it just goes somewhere else that's fine so we were we basically didn't bother rehearsing on the day chad said no let's not rehearse let's just play so he said fine we'll do that then you can't you, you don't argue with chad so um and so Cindy, I asked Cindy if she'd start. Um, and she said, what should I play? I said, oh, don't ask me what you should play. You play what you feel. And she, of course, she was brilliant. And so we just brought the lights down, just did some very simple lighting over each drummer, um, just a pool over each player, and then um, let the fuse paper. We started with a click track over the speakers in the studio, so she had something to kind of give her a tempo to start with. And then we cut the click, and then she'd go. And I think we only did four takes um for the whole day um and then they started running around you know because i think it was either chad or it was chad probably who got up and ran over to steven's kit and started playing it while he was playing it then he got up and changed and they all started running around playing each other's kits while and it was just mayhem and so at some point it was so much mayhem i'm glad we had that final track so we could actually bring it back in again at the end of the film and they were we do obviously at the very final shot is when we cut back to them playing again slowing down doom 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 Doom, yeah. bang, and that's the end of the film. Um, and it was, it's, I think we've all agreed, uh, the people who worked on it, it was the best day we've, any of us have ever had filming anything. It looked like you guys had a lot of fun. Oh, it was, <laughs> I mean, you know, from a stupid idea going, wouldn't it be, to seeing it, you know, and when we cut it as well, you can imagine when we actually put it, you know, we got to that, we put it off, we put that off, that final scene, we actually, I think we cut it as it should be at the very end, we just went, Okay, let's not mess this up. And I don't think we did. I I, I, I love it. I can, I can still watch that, and it, make, it just takes me straight back. Yeah, no, it it it's great. It's a great overall film for music fans and drummers. Shit, even if you're a guitar player, bassist, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll get something from it. Maybe you'll be nicer to your drummer next time. <laughs> I just wanted to add on, just because you interviewed so many drummers from different, you know eras of music yeah. over the last 40 50 years is there anybody you wish you got that you didn't uh who i mean there's people that are no longer with us that i kind of yeah. wish we could have got um i no I, well i mean i'm just trying to think who he wasn't well um i'm not sure if you'll know his name his name's hal blaine he used to drum he drummed especially in the 60s but particularly he was he was part of the the wrecking crew and they were the LA session players. They played okay. the Beach Boys records and everything. I mean, an incredible player and a lovely man, but he was very ill um, when we were filming of that whole period. And in fact, he passed away not long after we, we finished shooting. So I, I, I'm I'm sorry we didn't get to do him because um, I kind of would like, we like, we tried to do Dave Grohl, but his mm. diary was crazy. And actually that's okay as well because I, it didn't pull focus from Taylor in a weird kind yeah. of way. So, you know, from that point of view, but I mean, obviously Dave's everywhere, so it's okay. But, but I mean, obviously he's also very intelligent, very bright, and I love listening to him talk about music. You know, it's, again, he's he's a fan first and foremost. You know, um, Brilliant. But no, I don't think so. Mitch Mitchell, no longer with us, is one of my favourite drummers. Obviously, we did a big thing on Keith Moon halfway through with Who Are You? Um yeah. I don't know what it'd be like if if he'd still if he'd still been alive. What would have been like to interview Keith Moon? Would have been something. It would have been. Uh, I, I, he's my favourite just because of the combination of the character and the playing. It's so unorthodox, so out there, and yet he holds it together somehow. Yeah. And, you know, if you listen to the if you listen to a Who backing track, quite often you're going, I don't understand how this works. 
because it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Daltrey is fine. Yeah. But because yeah, he's doing the melody, carrying the melody over it, but everything else is just crazy, but it works. So, yeah, only those guys, I think. And yeah, they'll do me. Mitch Mitchell would have been lovely because, again, just so much, yeah, so much history with those guys. Right. And there's loads of great new players coming up as well. So, you know, so there's, there's loads to come. All right. Well, um, well, this is part of the show. As we wrap things up here. Uh, I understand how I got to stop doing this. It sounds like I'm reading off script, but (laughs) uh, no, I I understand how non-disclosure agreements work. Um, But if you have anything you can plug or talk about right now, coming down the pipeline for you, uh, the floor is yours. Funny enough, I really can't um, because we're developing something at the moment. No, I can't actually, because that's actually in development with someone I can't mention because that will get me in trouble. And there is a music series that we're trying to get off the ground at the moment. It's about the why it's the most important language on the planet and why it will hopefully save humanity. There you go. So okay. just a thing. Um, but why, why music allows us to be better to, with each other and kinder to each other, um, but also just why it makes us feel the way we do. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll keep an eye out for... Uh, yeah, that's, that's that'll take a while. That might be another three year, but I'll let you know. Okay, cool. Uh, well, Count Me In is streaming on Netflix right now. Uh, just it, it caught me by surprise. It was one of those, I don't know, I was sitting on the couch. My daughter was taking a nap and uh, I was like, oh, okay. Because I've, I've been going through documentaries because I haven't been able to read anything. So I literally try to like say, well, I can't really read a lot of books right now, but I can watch a lot of documentaries. Yeah, uh, that's kind of my thing. But again, great film. Uh, congratulations on it. Uh, everybody go check it out and, uh, we will see you next week on the basement. Take care.